3: Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Business of Government Stories, how the past can inform the future. Over the last 30 years, we have witnessed major changes across the management landscape in the U.S. federal government. That history provides important lessons for both today's leaders and for those who will take over into the future. Yet little has been written about the role leaders and teams have played in the evolution of management reforms often overcoming significant obstacles to achieve success sometimes experiencing failure each time learning and moving forward in 2020 the ibm center launched a podcast hosted by my colleagues dan Chenuck and john kaminsky that focuses on the stories behind a three decades long management evolution in the u.s federal government and more importantly offers lessons learned that can inform our path forward. It is from this rich library of discussion that I've culled together their insights on the evolution of performance management, acquisition reforms, and financial management reforms for this special edition of the Business of Government Hour. Using clear goals, performance information, transparency, and targets to highlight accountability can be a powerful tool to drive output-oriented performance, especially in clearly defined and stable government programs. Here is Senior Fellow John Kaminsky on the evolution of performance management in government. In
4: 1993, uh, Congress passed the Government Performance and Results Act and it required agencies to develop a strategic plan, an annual uh, performance plan, and then an annual report uh, as to what an agency's progress had been against that plan. And uh, that was an emphasis on agencies. And, And what happened between the Clinton administration and the Bush administration was that the Bush administration said they wanted to focus more on programs as opposed to agencies. And so the career folks that were involved at the Office Management and Budget, Jonathan Bruhl proposed uh, and worked with uh, OMB other staff, proposed uh, what they called a program assessment rating tool.
1: Marcus Peacock
4: in- was involved in that, uh, and he was an OMB uh, political appointee. And what they chose to do is to break up the government into a thousand different programs and rate each one of the programs. But Robert Shea took it on to to manage this and run the overall process once it was uh, set up. And Jonathan and others worked with, like, the National Academy for Public Administration others to come up with what that scorecard would look like in, in making that assessment. And then uh, once they put that into to play, um, it turned out to be a lot bigger effort than uh, OMB staff was quite ready to, to uh, deal with. And the transition from the Bush administration to the Obama administration, the career staff in OMB said, let's let's kind of tone this down and not focus so much on trying to capture everything. So they decided to focus on... Uh, major uh, agency priority goals and and then cross-agency priority goals.
3: Previous administrations wanted to set a tone of continuity in making performance management matter. Once again, John Kaminsky explains.
4: What he did that I thought was very valuable is that he ensured that a year before the end of the administration, there was an executive order that created uh, agency performance improvement officers and cross agency council and that created continuity across administrations and there was an agreement by the Obama administration to keep the, the uh, scorecard for the program assessment rating tool alive now they kept it alive and it was on the OMB website but they never updated it they moved instead to the, the approach of uh, cross-agency and agency priority goals. And that was ultimately enshrined into law in the Government Performance Results Act modernization in 2010. And so that, and then as well as what was in the executive order, creating agency performance improvement officers and a cross-agency council. So there was then uh, a, a structure in place that then, as the next administration took office, uh, that there was continuity in the framework and the, and the career leaders in OMB, Dustin Brown, uh, helped frame what would be in the management agenda for the new administration and wound up uh, having a lot of continuity and ensuring that uh, that uh, initiatives continued. The other thing was that, that because there was a performance improvement council and staff and funding. There was continuity, and Mm -hmm. so there was a great deal of of progress in the past two or three years because of the continuity that had been built into the system. For example, a lot of what was in the Evidence Act is based on what had occurred during the development of the Program Assessment Rating Tool, because there was an element in there of uh, looking at and evaluating the success of different programs.
3: Dan Chenock, Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, emphasizes the importance of continuity that this business of government story illustrates.
0: Interesting. So another example of agencies uh, focusing on their performance, with, interacting with OMB, and learning the lesson of when you, when you change administrations, it's, it's as important to care, create a structure for continuity, because if you don't do that, then you lose time.
3: The bottom line lesson in this business of government story around the evolution of performance management is that using clear goals, performance information, transparency and targets to highlight accountability can be a very powerful tool to drive performance. But since results are not just the outputs of a particular program, and there is not always a stable program environment, there are indeed different approaches used in other parts of government. John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center, continues our focus on the evolution of performance management in government, highlighting a movement that places emphasis on learning. The
4: interesting thing I found was that when I was working on reinventing government, that there was no uh, way for agencies to work across agency boundaries. There was not a a legislative authority to do this. And uh, come 2010, when uh, the Obama administration had been trying to develop agency priority goals and cross-agency priority, they actually put this into statute. So there's now some authority to do this. But what they're doing is they're using a performance stat-like approach. Every quarter, uh, there's an assessment as to what the progress is uh, around both the agency priority goals as well as the cross-agency
3: priority goals. So what is performance stat? Once again, John Kaminsky.
4: What it is is it's uh, getting the key decision makers into the room to talk about uh, what's going on around a particular goal. So, for example, the uh, Department of Housing and Urban Development and the Department of Veterans Affairs uh, had a joint goal of reducing homelessness among veterans. And there were a lot of questions about how you go about it. And so what they did is they came together and developed a strategy for doing this. They decided they're going to focus on the top 20 or 21 cities around the country where there were homeless veterans rather than trying to do something nationwide. And then they had task forces that went into each of these communities to talk with the uh, people on the ground. And they came back to this Uh, quarterly meetings saying, here's what we're finding, here's what we're learning. OMB helped uh, basically catalyze uh, the effort, but it it came out of the agencies. And there are now other cross-agency priority goals as a result of the 2010 law. And uh, currently, there's about 14 cross-agency priority goals. Uh, There's one around uh, information technology modernization, and that gets into Um, cloud first and cybersecurity. There's another one that's looking at the better use of data and accountability and uh, transparency, and that's led to a national data strategy. So they have a lot of these things that are are going on. What's interesting, though, is that when they were created back in uh, 2010 as a result of the law, they were just proposed. And and what was also interesting was that the idea and the proposal of this was uh, germinated in part out of an IBM Center report that Shelley Metzenbaum did for us as part of the presidential transition stuff. And uh, when she was asked to become the um, uh, associate director for uh, performance management in OMB, she brought that agenda along. And it's now in statute. And then she was followed by Lisa Danzig, who took the cross-agency priority goal initiative and made that uh, the foundation for the president's management agenda. And that rolled over into the current administration's use of cross-agency priority goals.
3: So why is it so important that federal agencies be transparent? Once again, here's John Kaminsky to explain.
4: The agencies just need to be transparent about what's going on. And one of the things that was interesting that I got the opportunity to sit in on one of these uh, performance stat meetings between VA and HUD, and the fundamental question was what is homeless, and how do we measure that they're not homeless? And there was a fundamental difference in definitions between the two agencies which affected the strategy. Uh, in the case of HUD, it was, we can give them a voucher, but it turns out that giving them a voucher didn't uh, resolve homelessness because they didn't have the down payment to pay for the apartment to to rent. Uh, uh, And HUD didn't have the authority to do that, but VA did. So by measuring how many people are no longer homeless as opposed to they were given a voucher, changed the strategy.
3: The bottom line lesson in this business of government story is that while accountability-focused performance management is a powerful tool for driving change in certain settings, learning-focused performance management can also be that powerful tool because it concentrates on evidence-based joint learning among participants about understanding what works and why and what actions are needed to solve performance problems. Top leaders in federal agencies have embraced the use of evidence-based learning routines reflecting the principles of Performance Stat over the past decade. The key lesson has been that continuity in the use of defined administrative routines that makes a difference in achieving performance improvement. The next challenge for agency leaders is to find ways to cascade the use of these evidence-based learning routines within their organization Frontline Managers. The government's program management story, taking a cue from the big screen when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center this week is our opportunity to inform, and most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Established by the GPRA Modernization Act of 2010, cross-agency priority goals, CAP goals, are a tool used by the federal government to accelerate progress on a limited number of presidential priority areas where implementation requires active collaboration between multiple agencies, overcoming organizational barriers to achieve better performance than one agency can achieve on its own. Today, I will explore the importance of cross-agency collaboration in general and progress made on a handful of specific CAP goals with my colleague, John Kaminsky, senior fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. John, would you tell us more about the Government Performance and Results Modernization Act? What does it require of each major agency? Well, the law basically takes best practices that developed
4: over the years and puts some of them into law and then also develops some new ones. Uh, The 1993 original GPRA law uh, laid out a, a series of requirements for agencies, and some of them didn't work. And I helped draft that law when I was at GAO back in, in the early 90s. Is we thought that agencies should have some flexibility as to how long they should prepare their strategic plan for three to five years. So it wouldn't necessarily be tied to the political regime that uh, was in power at the time. And it turns out that that was naive. So the law was changed so that all agency strategic plans are refreshed each presidential term. So the incoming administration will be the first one that will benefit from this. What they'll be able to do is have all agency strategic plans refreshed. They have a year to do it. So the first year in office, they'll be developing these strategic plans with their new leadership and their new priorities. And then they'll all go into uh, effect uh, basically in February as part of the president's submission of his budget. But in addition to the uh, agency strategic plans, one of the other things that we learned is that when we drafted the original law in 93, we thought that agencies' annual operating plans would be derived from the agency's strategic plans. But it turns out that many agencies placed those requirements in different shops. And so the annual performance plans didn't necessarily tie back to the strategic plans. The new law requires a tie, a link. Um, the other thing is is that a- OMB is uh, required to do an assessment of agency progress against the plan. It was in the past that just the plans uh, they would be completed at the end of the year, an annual performance report. There would be no assessment of well, did you do well or not? And agencies didn't self-assess. So there, there's a little more accountability and Christmas in in the new law. The other thing that's interesting that there was a, a an Obama administration. Um, initiative was for each agency to identify among their strategic plans and goals, some priorities. So it's like three to five priorities that they would focus on and that there would be government-wide cross-agency priorities as well. These were embedded into law. So today there's 16 cross-agency priority goals and about 99 agency-specific Uh, agency priority goals. Uh, And they have to be reviewed on a quarterly basis and their progress reported on a centralized website. So that's all kind of new that the new president will, will inherit. The other thing is that it codified some best practices like chief operating officers, which are for most agencies, their deputy secretary. The creation of performance improvement officers, which was a Bush innovation uh, that was now placed into law. The Performance Improvement Council, again, a Bush administration uh, initiative, and it's now into law. So so that sort of uh, is what the Government Performance Results Modernization Act does.
3: Are these goals set in stone or can they be dropped and replaced depending on whose, whose administration is running well, the, well, the government? Well, g-
4: the – agency priority goals are two-year goals. The cross-agency priority goals are four-year goals. So they're coterminous with the presidential term. There's currently 16. Mm -hmm. And the law says that a certain number of them or certain types of them have to be mission support related. And then the rest can be mission oriented or policy oriented. One of our Authors that we've had, Don Kettle, you've had him on the show before, says that that in the U.S., a lot of things that are significant reach across agency boundaries, significant policy problems reach across agency boundaries, and there was no statutory mechanism to work across agency boundaries very neatly. And so this law creates that capacity that no
3: president's had before. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Business of Government Stories. The U.S. government provides needed services. Families receive Social Security checks, students receive support to attend college, small businesses receive loans, and the list goes on and on. And one of the biggest management issues facing government is properly managing those programs. Dan Chenock, Executive Director of the IBM Center, offers some background on the work to improve the management government programs.
0: It's an interesting um, evolution, and it's not broader than technology. Um, A lot of the programs that have gotten attention over the years for being over budget or behind schedule have been technology projects, but there are also challenges in programs that are providing services um, and uh, uh, in compliance arenas and I would say about uh, over 10 years ago, a group of former government leaders who were working with the Council for Excellence in Government came together to try to identify strategies to help the government manage programs better. And we, we met over breakfast at uh, the Council for Excellence's office, and it was a number of people, including uh, Alan Balutis, Stan Soloway, Jim Williams, and myself, and Greg Giddens um, were all in this group. And because we met at breakfast, we called ourselves the Breakfast Club. Um, also, because we liked movies. And uh, we actually developed a set of recommendations and a report that was issued through the Council for Excellence. And that went in to try to help government sort of over time look at how to manage programs uh, well and effectively. That report was still there when the um, uh, healthcare.gov. Initiative was rolled out. And of course, um, the launch of the technology element of that piece, which received a lot of justifiably critical attention, uh, was in large part a program management challenge. Uh, and it took a significant team of people uh, led by uh, the acting director of OMB at the time, Jeffrey Zients, and the chief technology officer uh, of the White House, um, Todd Park, and uh, Mikey Dickerson, who was pulled in from silicon valley as a, as a leading expert to try to bring together best practice in the commercial space and say how do these ideas for improving program management really help us to in that case rescue a major priority of that administration
3: how did a one-time program management rescue evolve into what is today a government-wide effort an asset for improving government program management once again dan chenuck
0: well there's kind of two outgrowths one is the creation of a unit uh, that we'll talk about in a future discussion called the U.S. Digital Service, which was created to sort of do similar work helping the government solve really hard technology problems. And uh, another, which was more on the program management side, was the development of of a piece of legislation Um, that was backed by industry advice and academic advice from the National Academy of Public Administration around program management. And I chaired a panel at the National Academy uh, of experts where we took a look at the experience in healthcare, we took a look at work that other organizations had done in response to healthcare, like the American Council for Technology, which put out its 7S for success framework, 7S meaning seven words beginning with the letter S, uh, which we testified before in Congress, uh, along with others around after healthcare, what lessons could be learned. And then we NAPA put out its report. Uh, and that report was went into a congressional discussion that had bipartisan support, both in the House and the Senate, and led to, uh, with the strong support of the Program Management Institute, um, led to the development of the Program Management Improvement Accountability Act.
3: So what happened after the passage of the Program Management Improvement Accountability Act? Chenick explains.
0: So the statute... Um, basically laid out a number of sort of principles of good program management agencies It called on the agencies to develop sort of program management leaders and to create um, a career path um, type type environments around that. And it helped agency program management leaders understand that unlike past program management efforts where they really were kind of within programmatic silos, that there was a community of program managers that that could share information and help one another improve performance across the board. So this was a key lesson learned of the evolution of program management is it's really sort of a a cross-agency governance model. And you need to think of these in kind of groups of programs. And one of our IBM Center reports written by University of Michigan scholar Janet Weiss really took a look at how do you think about program management in these different groups, whether it's social services or law enforcement or national defense, Mm -hmm. there's different aspects of program management that are important to emphasize. I think the cross-agency governance around particular areas is something that's very important. Also very important is creating, and from the healthcare perspective, most programs now are delivered through technology. Mm -hmm. So creating a really strong, sound technology infrastructure and roadmap for people to follow that's tied to the program goals. And then finally, and perhaps most importantly, is, is the alignment of incentives. Any major program has multiple stakeholders, the agency, the industry partner, the constituent interest groups, members of Congress. And if the incentives are aligned and people are moving toward a common North Star, you're going to have a much greater sense of success.
3: From the evolution of government performance and program management, our focus shifts to another critical management priority for government over the last 30 years. How it acquires and procures goods and services, to meet its many and varied missions. Attention on government procurement and acquisition has been a long focus of the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, and Congress. Al Berman, a former administrator of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy at OMB, provides his insights on some of the early reforms to the federal acquisition system. There were many things he saw that needed to change, and Al helped pave the way for some of the major legislation that happened in the early and mid-90s. Berman tells us more about his role on the study panel for defense procurement reform and the changes that happened.
5: It seems like a very different era back then uh, compared to the kinds of things we're uh, seeing in terms of the partisanship on the Hill. It was kind of interesting that back then it seemed like you had both Republicans and Democrats jointly telling the administration how uh, they weren't doing a very good job on, on their procurement processes. And uh, for me, it was frequently uh, Senators of Levin and Cohen on the Senate Governmental Affairs Committee that tend to really focus on this issue. And they were particularly concerned about ensuring that a lot of the reforms coming out of the earlier Competition and Contracting Act in the mid 1980s were in fact being put in place and we were getting good competition, but they were also concerned that the government seemed to be buying all these government unique kinds of items and things and that there was this whole commercial market out there that should be available to federal government agencies for all kinds of purposes and we just weren't making use of it. And so the section 800 panel was mainly set up in response to these kinds of concerns. Too many rules and regulations, too costly to get things done. People didn't get things done in a timely fashion. And these seem to be universal criticisms that people in this contracting and acquisition business face. And so the Section 800 panel was set up. Initially, it was going to be a government-wide panel. But it was set up to try to at least Focus on speeding up procurements for the Defense Department, and we spent a couple of years at it. There were 13 members of the panel, there were government people, uh, as well as folks from the private sector on the panel, it was headed up by the head of the Defense Systems Management College, Admiral Bill, Bill Vincent, who did a great job in getting us to focus on these kinds of issues. And as a result... The final report, which I think was about a foot and a half in in depth, probably weighed 15 pounds, uh, was sent up to the Hill with a whole series of of recommendations. But the most critical ones were to uh, try to address this need for buying commercial and doing a better job of buying commercial and then simplifying how uh, the agencies could go through that process. Its focus was defense. I was the procurement administrator and was very concerned about how civilian agencies could also take advantage of this. And so we were very fortunate that a lot of the recommendations coming out of the panel were really able to be applied government wide and they, and they have been now for, for many years.
3: Almost 30 years later, Al Berman contrasts his experience working on procurement reforms as part of the Section 800 panel to his most recent work on similar reforms.
5: Well, in many ways, it was very uh, similar, and we adopted a number of the similar practices from what we did with the Section 800 panel. One uh, key element was ensuring that when we made our recommendations, we'd also put in the documents specific congressional language so that if someone decided that, hey, this was a good idea, they wouldn't have to spend years to actually put the niceties of the language together together. the hill to actually make use of that recommendation that was something we did with the section 800 panel and it had a a great benefit in terms of making that process work uh, more smoothly we also divided the group up into uh, different segments that would focus on different areas so that uh, we take advantage of all the skills of the people I think we had uh, some 18 people as commissioners on the 809 panel and we still Needless to say, we're focusing on commercial products and speed. So those issues or those concerns haven't really disappeared. They're still uh, out there for us to uh, contend with. And we do have some new suggestions on how we might do even better in terms of buying commercial. One of the concerns from the uh, panel... Is a lot of the provisions that were effective in the 1994 ASA Act, where you eliminated various laws from affecting the purchase of, of uh, commercial products? Well, a lot of, a lot of these laws and uh, regulations have come back in force. And so I think there were something like well over 100 new statutes now applying for uh, in, in the commercial world. So again, it makes some sense to do a second look and a new look at trying to see if we can again simplify how we buy these things that are out there in the marketplace.
3: As Al Berman's insights underscore, imagine procurement having the level of importance that would bring a unanimous bipartisan Congress together in support of a standalone bill fixing how the government does its business. That would be a true federal government success story. As we continue to look at the evolution of procurement and acquisition reforms over the last several decades, we look to the early 2000, when a major emphasis of the new George W. Bush administration was around the topic called competitive sourcing. The idea was to look at services currently performed by government employees that could be done more efficiently and effectively by the private sector and were not inherently governmental activities such as lawn maintenance photography and even laundry services the theory behind competitive sourcing was that the private sector could do these activities or supply these services more efficiently and at a lower cost John Kaminsky senior fellow at the IBM center tells us more about the competitive sourcing initiative and how it evolved
6: well, what's interesting is this initiative started actually in the Eisenhower administration, and it was called by its administrative name uh, A76 after the LMB circular that laid out the guidance for the rules of competition. And it was used um, off and on over time. It was uh, over the years, and it was picked up in the Clinton administration in the Defense Department. But then it then spread government-wide with the uh, beginning of the um, George W. Bush administration. The challenge was there was a constant tug-of-war about what constituted inherently governmental work. So would air traffic controllers be inherently governmental? They're not in other countries. Uh, postal workers, no, not necessarily in other countries. Medical doctors and VA or prison guards. There were a lot of debates. In fact, A-76 had 17 pages that defined what was inherently governmental. In Clinton years, Congress mandated an inventory of every federal job, classifying every employee as whether they were inherently governmental or not. Uh, That was called the Federal Activities Inventory Reform Act of 1998, Uh, and so that was uh, an initiative actually didn't come to fruition in terms of having a completed inventory until uh, after 2000. The president's management agenda had five pillars, and competitive sourcing was one of them. And the initial goal was to compete at least half of the positions that were identified in the Fair Act inventory as having a commercial counterpart. So that would have been competing about 425,000 jobs. Uh, which was an enormous number uh, and and aspirational. And when the administration started that work, it said that the A-76 competition rules were too complicated. And so they created a a, a panel or commission to revise A-76. And in 2003, it was shortened and simplified a complex process so that it wouldn't take four years to run a competition, but up to uh, just about a year. And OMB director Mitch Daniels said that, you know, for a quality service at the best price, competition beats monopoly every time. And it's an established fact that fair competition can save taxpayers an average of 30 percent, whether the work is done in-house or by an outsiders. So whoever wins the competitions, we can be confident the taxpayers will win. So that was sort of the, the thinking uh, back then in the early 2000s. And the head of the Office of Federal Procurement Policy was Angela Stiles, and she led this effort. It was perceived by unions as privatizing jobs and not necessarily competing them to find which provided better service at the best price. What was interesting was that an OMB report to Congress in 2007 reported that 87 percent of the competitions were won by the in-house government team, uh, which had created what was called the most efficient organization. And that the uh, savings that resulted since the beginning of the Bush administration as a result of this initiative was about uh, $6.9 billion. So there were savings that came out of this, even though it was seen as very contentious.
3: So where does A-76 and competitive sourcing stand today? Kaminsky explains.
6: Congress suspended A-76 competitions in the Defense Department in January 2008 over concerns that the OMB guidance was overstating savings and understating costs. The the idea was that the A76 revised guidance was uh, not fair, and it was tilting the competition in in favor of the private sector, even though the data showed uh, the opposite was happening. So, and, and in fiscal 2012, the moratorium that was in the Defense Department was extended to all civilian agencies, and that moratorium continues today, even though the current administration has has tried to lift it. But based on the evidence, it seems that there's merit in conducting competitions because it causes the in-house government team to revisit and rethink how they're doing their work. And by the way, it was implemented; it was seen more as a political initiative. And as a result, unlikely this approach will be used anytime in the foreseeable future.
3: The key lesson from this business of government story around competitive sourcing is that reforms dealing with personnel are always sensitive issues with employees and unions, and how they are framed and communicated matters. If framed properly and accounting for lessons learned from the past, such things as competitions can be implemented in a way that brings commercial best practices to government. How do past acquisition reforms impact what's happening today and set a path for the future? We'll find out when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns.
1: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
3: Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Business of Government Stories, how past efforts can inform future successes. Stan Soloway, a leading thinker in government procurement and acquisition reforms, joins us to provide his insights into how we can learn from the past and set a path forward.
2: I think, as the government always does, it, it tends to jump forward and then jump backwards very quickly on, on a lot of things. Uh, but the 90s, there was there was a broad recognition as the reinventing government initiative really got, got going, about the centrality of acquisition to government operations, and this is something a lot of people just don't pay attention to. But, and I say in the piece that you know half of the government's budget, the discretionary budget, goes out in contracts. The government is a government of programs and projects, much of which involves, many of which involve private sector partners. Uh, and so this this was widely recognized in the early 90s and led to some very major reforms. Uh, in the mid-90s under uh, the Clinton administration. And there was a lot of excitement and optimism, as you said, around those. As we rolled into the 2000s, there were several things happened. Uh, there were certainly some mistakes made. I wouldn't say any major giant scandals, but there were people making made mistakes, as often happens, particularly with new authorities and so forth. Uh, but then we started seeing a trend towards acquisition being used, in a way, as a political cudgel. So if you think about the Iraq War uh, and all the the, the debate and, and, and division over uh, U.S. involvement in Iraq and so forth, uh, not too long after we entered Iraq, uh, acquisition issues, and I put that in quotes, began to take center stage. And on some levels that was because it was a whole new and much more visible world of acquisition than most people in Congress and, and in the media had been aware of uh, in previous conflicts in previous years. Uh, but it was also uh, a situation where those perceived errors or uh, perceived issues with acquisition—some of them were real—I'm not going to say that there were no problems, but they were certainly not endemic. Uh, that the challenges that we faced in the field and, and became political footballs; they became opportunities to for, for either side to go after the other side's positions on a much broader, unrelated issue, which in this case was involvement in Iraq or Afghanistan or what have you. So there was a real politicization of acquisition in ways that we had really not seen before and at a level and to a degree that we had not seen before. And that then this amplified other issues, concerns about some of the commercial buying authorities that had been put in place in the 90s. Occasionally there were errors made. Those errors became quote-unquote major scandals uh, and that led to more hearings and more acquisition folks being uh, hauled up in public and so forth. And, again, I'm not belittling the the problems that existed, but it was very, in my view, very clearly an overreaction to what was going on. There was an underrepresentation of some of the good that the changes had wrought. And, frankly, we kind of lost sight of the fact that reform does not necessarily mean things are easier. It means that they're better and we weren't making the investments in the workforce that needed to be made to really let them take, take the shackles off and, and get to work. So I think all of those forces came together to create a very negative downdraft uh, and, 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 and a slow but certain dilution of some of the reforms of the 90s.
3: According to Stan Soloway, many of these efforts set the stage for reforms over the last decade, which he has described as more tactical and incremental.
2: So we saw a lot of different things evolve, uh, you know, so in the 2010s, Uh, And I'm not making any judgments positive or negative on any of them, uh, but a real focus on sort of smarter buying around things like strategic sourcing or category management, which are very closely related cousins, uh, where the government was really trying to get its arms around uh, what it's spending on what, what it's paying for what, how much redundancy there was in the system or is in the system, and so forth. Um, the Defense Department embarked on a series of, of uh, attempts that they were, they were called reforms but they were really, again, largely tactical, uh, very down to specific things about how and when one should use low-price technically acceptable buying and what we should be doing here and what we should be doing there, so very specific kind of almost direction to the workforce, some of which they then revised a year or two later as they realized they may have gone too far or misstated some, some things. Um, so we really began, we began to see in the 2010s a lot of these sort of um, smaller-in-scope individual initiatives, not unimportant initiatives and some of them quite effective. At the same time we were also seeing the real explosion of the use of, of government-wide acquisition vehicles, these large IDIQ contracts and that then drove a lot of this pressure for particularly collecting data, understanding what we're buying, who we're buying it from, uh, why are we paying for one price over here versus another price over there, and so forth? Uh, and, and that really became a central part of the acquisition battle. There was a quite a heated debate for a while over whether or not the government should be outsourcing and to how much the government should be outsourcing to government. So there was a trend within the, in, in the, of what we call insourcing, of work being brought in, back in-house, and that has a real acquisition implication because it has to to do with how you evaluate bids what the risk factors are facing companies that are bidding on work, particularly professional services work, and so forth. So, but it was a much more tactical focus for much of the, of the 2010s, uh, and, and some, some significant investments in workforce, very large investments, particularly hmm. the Defense Department, although I, w- I would say, by and large, not a large investment in developing a workforce with skills for the 21st century, still very much based on the same skills and, and, and approaches we had previously.
3: Stan Soloway offers his recommendations for how to improve government acquisition.
2: And let me let me preface it by saying I think where we came to over the last, I'll say three or four years, is something taking place in government that we've seen for a longer period of time in the commercial world, and that is the customer starting to take charge. So the frustrations of customers, fair or unfair, and some and it goes both ways with the pace of the acquisition system, whether or not they were getting innovation, getting the best of the best and so forth, started to take hold, started driving, particularly the Defense Department because they have special authorities, a lot of alternative acquisition usage going from a half a billion dollars a year to almost 10 billion dollars this year in these alternative acquisition methodologies. We in government and most of the, the commercial world for decades thought of acquisition functionally, sort of as a vertical. And what you see now in the commercial world is a broad horizontal look at a much broader theory or thematic approach to supply chain, of which procurement and acquisition are a part. That requires a different kind of enterprise view. It requires, a, in, particularly in this digital age, as the nature of work, both for the acquisition folks and for the customers they're serving, has changed so dramatically. It requires a very different way of thinking about the activity, about the function about the interdependencies that exist between different uh, parts of the government. It's not like the old integrated process teams we used to talk about, although it's similar. It's a whole other level above that of thinking broadly and organizationally around the acquisition function as it relates to mission and, 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 and in a much more horizontal kind of, as I said, supply chain uh, approach. And that really does require you to rethink the kinds of skills in a digital era that we need it requires uh, uh, the government to rethink and recalibrate how it's accessing and assessing the broadest possible marketplace because the government certainly doesn't own or isn't the progenitor of most new technology that's t- that's, that's, being, uh, ne- that's needed to run the government, whether it's in the weapon systems world, frankly, or in the business operations of government. So it just requires a whole much broader, different kind of thinking. And it's that systemic look and really starting to build... A much more modern structure and capability is where we are, I think, now.
3: Given that about half of the discretionary portion of the federal budget goes into contracts, it should come as no surprise that the acquisition function, the processes, the policies, and the people, continues to be a focus of attention. From procurement and acquisition, we move to the evolution of federal financial management and its reform, and we mark the 30th anniversary of the enactment of the Chief Financial Officers Act of 1990, the law that set the foundation for many of the necessary financial management reforms within the U.S. federal government over the last three decades. John Kaminsky, Senior Fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government, tells us more.
6: The Chief Financial Officers Act, or the CFO Act, was uh, cre- created the positions of uh, Chief Financial Officers and Deputy Chief Financial Officers in the 24 major agencies in the government that cover about 98% of all federal spending. See, interestingly, uh, our past Executive Director, Jonathan Bruhl, was detailed from OMB up to the uh, Senate Governmental Affairs Committee and worked with Senator John Glenn in drafting the uh, CFO Act. The act also requires the preparation of annual financial statements uh, at the time for several, but not all, agencies, and then directed them to be audited by their agencies' uh, respective inspector generals for accuracy, and that accuracy in accounting language is called a clean opinion. And then in 1994, four years later, the law was expanded to all federal agencies, uh, along with the requirement that there would be a government-wide financial statement and a government-wide audit on the accuracy of the entire government's uh, spending portfolio. And this was actually uh, a recommendation of the National Performance Review. And I remember when this recommendation was being developed that uh, Vice President Gore's Uh, political advisors were warning him, uh, I wouldn't pursue this. Uh, You know, the audits might fail and everybody will look bad for it. And the vice president looked at him and said, you know, if we don't start now, we'll never get this done. And so he knew that uh, there might be failure and there might be political consequences, but there really weren't political consequences. And okay, this is many years later and the federal government still doesn't have a clean opinion on the government-wide financial statement. Um, there is uh, progress. In 1997, the first audits were done uh, of the 24 major agencies, and six of the 24 agencies passed their audits. And then last year, um, which is the most recent year in which the audits were done, Uh, Twenty-two of the 24 agencies passed their audits. Two didn't. Uh, The Defense Department, which had never passed its audit, and uh, the Department of Housing and Urban Development, which had passed audits uh, up until about 2013 or so, and then it had a change in its financial systems that led to it not getting a clean opinion, but they probably will this year, so... But the Defense Department comprises probably half of all the discretionary spending in the government. So that's kind of a big deal that the Defense Department hasn't been able to uh, get a clean opinion. Um, and until all the agencies pass, the government-wide won't get uh, a clean opinion. So,
3: Along with setting the stage for getting a clean audit opinion, which is key for any chief financial officer, there are other reforms that the federal financial system needed John Kaminsky explains.
6: Uh, whereas the uh, financial statements are sort of the nirvana for chief financial officers and people in the audit community, there's obviously uh, the systems underneath. And unless those systems work, you're not going to get a clean opinion. And GAOs, uh, under, at the time Chuck Bowsher and today under Gene Diderot, have been major champions of the financial management system and the CFO Act. And, and they released a report in early August uh, saying substantial progress made since enactment of the 1990 CFO Act, but refinements would yield additional benefits. And uh, they they laid out a, a framework of things that have been accomplished and things that, that still need to be achieved in addition to a clean financial statement. Um, they also claim in that report that the laws contributed to the avoidance of billions in misspended and, and in fraud. Because uh, having uh, strong financial systems and internal controls allow uh, agency managers to be able to be on top of uh, potential misspending. Uh, the federal government, uh, the value of pursuing financial statements is not the statement itself, but the underlying systems and processes that it produces that give assurance to the agencies and to the Congress that agencies have the ability to track their spending. The GAO identified a series of areas for improvement. Though there's been good leadership from the chief financial officers and the government-wide chief financial officers council, uh, but the GAO uh, has recommended that, that these responsibilities be expanded and standardized in the future. And that in financial reporting, that agencies should begin to link the performance information under the Government Performance and Results Act and the cost information that's produced by the financial system. So we can better understand how much things that are being produced actually cost. And then there's uh, something called internal controls, which can track improper payments and mispayments that need to be improved. And there's been a a series of laws that have been passed over the past 30 years to strengthen internal controls. And then financial management systems themselves, IT systems, still half of the agencies are using legacy or old systems. But the the good news is that many agencies are beginning to move to what's called shared services, so that instead of agencies developing their own financial systems, they use a shared system that's developed by, say, the Treasury Department, which has a a stronger uh, handle on spending. And then Much like under the acquisition workforce, which we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, improving uh, the federal financial management workforce and closing the skill gap is one of the six mission-critical skills identified by the Office of Personnel Management.
3: So what has been learned over the many years of federal financial management reforms? And what's next? Once again, John Kaminsky.
6: Well, interestingly, um, there's been a consensus within the financial management professional community on improvements that um, are largely reflected in the GAO report that was released in early August. And Congress has uh, there's been a, a legislation proposed called the CFO Vision Act of 2020 which would expand and standardize the CFO's responsibilities uh, across agencies and bring in things such as uh, budget and performance and risk management under a broader umbrella. I would think that also that the greater shift to shared services would be one way of creating greater standardization so that if each agency is not creating their own financial systems, they, instead they're relying on a centralized, standardized uh, financial system that it's going to wind up reducing risks, and that the centralized uh, system will be uh, much more likely to be modernized and not uh, a legacy-based. Uh, in addition, uh, I think that the audit community is beginning to recognize the focus shouldn't be on the once-a-year audited financial statements, but rather Uh, relying uh, more heavily on what's called enterprise risk management, which is uh, a conversation that we'll be having as a part of this uh, blog series uh, in a few weeks. And then finally, I think that there's going to be importance in in, in investing in real-time financial data rather than just year-end audits. And this gets back to putting financial information in the hands of program managers and frontline managers, that data that's much more granular and that's actionable by managers on the front lines. So it's not just providing information for the financial system. It's a financial system providing information for frontline managers.
3: I hope you've enjoyed these business of government stories, and I invite you to listen to the entire IBM podcast series, at businessofgovernment.org backslash stories. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire show at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app, and as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
2: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
1: How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Ang, presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.